Thank you, Michael, for that. <clears throat> We've been so blessed to have you here over the holidays. Your whole family blesses us with music, but we're glad to have you and Ryan here this past couple weeks. My name is Porter Harlow. Welcome to all our visitors. I see a few faces here uh, today that I don't recognize, so we welcome you to worshiping with us today. Um, our senior pastor, uh, Charlie Bale, preached through Advent, preached through Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and then took his family on a well-deserved week off to South Carolina to be with Kim's parents, and I think her grandfather as well. I saw a picture on Facebook of Charlie and Haddon going out to play golf with Kim's father and her grandfather. And I, I think the report was on Facebook that Charlie and Haddon tied them. So those men still play a, a mean game of golf. Uh, Kathy and I are preparing for church planting. I'm preparing for ordination and we're preparing for church planting. And I've spent the past, <clears throat> excuse me, several months uh, studying and taking ordination exams in the Presbyterian Church in America. And during my personal devotion times, I've been reading through scriptures about how Jesus Christ is building his church here in this world. And one of the passages that I've been using for my study and to guide my prayers is our passage this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> the book of Ephesians is an appropriate book for us to look at because the city of Ephesus, excuse me, let me try and clear this up. <clears throat> Pardon me. The city of Ephesus was a great city of the ancient world, a great and diverse city, much like our Washington, D.C. area is. The city of Ephesus was the capital of the Roman Empire in Asia, and it was one of the five largest cities in all of the Roman Empire. Its temple to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it also hosted a temple to the Emperor Augustus Caesar, where he was worshipped as divine. Its port on the Mediterranean Sea, directly across from Athens, Greece, made it a place of international trade, which made it truly a diverse city, as locals, who would now, we would call from the area of Turkey, lived amongst Greeks and Romans and many Jewish people from the diaspora that was spread around the Mediterranean. So Paul had come to Ephesus preaching and now he's sending letters teaching this diverse group of peoples how the gospel of Jesus Christ is binding them together in unity. And that is one of the themes of the book and, one of, and what we are going to look at this morning, how the gospel binds diverse peoples into the kingdom of God, brings them into the kingdom of God, which we see here today as the church of Jesus Christ. So please give your attention to God's word from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. God says, and Paul wrote, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, 
in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray for the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts to your word so that we may understand the work that Christ has done on the cross and the work that he continues to do in building his church. We pray this in his saving name. Amen. Moving around in the Marine Corps for a little over 20 years, Kathy and I were in seven churches before we came here in 2010 and joined Shady Grove. The first two churches in our marriage were very large churches with a wide variety of programs and a whole slew of Sunday school classes to choose from. And in the first two churches, we joined the Sunday school class for newlyweds and new parents. And there, we enjoyed the fellowship of many people like ourselves, people who watched the same television shows, went to the same movies, back when people went to the movies, and uh, enjoyed the same music, and were at that same stage in life. The third church we joined was not like that. Our third, the third church we joined was a church plant outside of Sun City, which is a Dell Webb-designed retirement community in between Hilton Head, South Carolina, and Beaufort, South Carolina. That uh, Sun City is one where you have to be 55 years of older or older to be a resident there. So this church plant that was started in the community in a community room inside Sun City had just moved outside and was meeting in an office park when Kathy and I, in our late 20s, joined becoming the first couple under the age of 55 to join the church. And I wondered at first how much fellowship and friendship were we giving up to join and, and join in on the work being done at this church plant. But I quickly came to realize how much wisdom and experience we had been missing out on in all those years where we were essentially worshiping with people who are copies of ourselves. As we became parents for the first time, we benefited from the wisdom and experience 
of all these parents and grandparents who had been there and already seen that and could talk to us about what was going on. People who had retired from a multitude of interesting careers, people who had moved here, moved there from various places and cultures up and down the East Coast of the United States. And it's, we also learned not only how to become good parents, but we learned how to be committed spouses. As we watched one husband love his wife at the end of her journey through with Alzheimer's, watching him serve her and then watching him grieve faithfully as a widower with the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ with her someday. Our group, our church plant grew to uh, include many more young families and young singles like we were. And the Holy Spirit bound all of us together into a group that loved each other and served each other. Our experience in the world, in that church plant, bears evidence to what Paul is talking about in Ephesians this morning. This morning's passage says that God builds his church by drawing diverse people together, first to God, then into his church, where he is building unity without uniformity. So first we have to answer the gateway question. Why does God need to bring people to God and give them access to God, as our passage says? Well, in these verses, Paul's addressing two groups, the Gentiles who were far off from God and the Jewish people who were close to God but still separated from him. What, is, what was it that separated them? Well, it was their sin, their sin against God, and their sin against his law. In verse 12, Paul tells us, he, Paul tells the Greeks to, quote, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated and strangers to the covenants of promise. But Jesus, he said, came to take away God's hostility towards them, taking away the curse of death for their sin through his death on the cross. By satisfying the, the demands of God's law, Christ was able to bring peace, peace between his father and the Gentiles who would turn to him in faith. And that is the peace that Paul is offering, that he's offering to the Greeks and the Romans and the Asians and all of the other Gentile people groups who are there in Ephesus getting this letter. Perhaps you are here this morning and recognize that you are a lot like the Greeks and the Romans and the Asians that Paul is writing to. Perhaps you grew up outside the church not hearing or not understanding the promises of salvation that are available through faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps God has been drawing you recently, drawing you to himself, making you uncomfortable with your sin, causing you to want to turn away from it, to follow him. Do that this morning. Turn to Christ as your Lord and Savior and pray for him to bring you his peace. Peace with the God who created you. Peace with the God who loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. 
These promises were also for those in Israel who had been near to God all along, but also separated from him by their sin. They were close in that they were being raised on the promises of salvation and hearing how to live according to his law as a response to that salvation. But like some children born inside the church, many tragically failed to listen or understand what was being offered to them. Instead, they loved themselves and lived according to their own laws and rules that they had made up for themselves. They trusted that going through the motions of going to synagogue, of following in the traditions of their parents, that that would save them from God's judgment upon their sin. But Paul says Jesus came to bring peace to them as well. And perhaps you find yourself close to that camp this morning. Perhaps you were raised in the church hearing the promises of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but ignored those promises. Perhaps you've been living according to the ways of the world during the week, and then when you come to church on Sunday, you do feel uncomfortable. And maybe you leave here each Sunday vowing to do better than you did last week. But hear the truth that Paul teaches in Romans 6, that we are all bound to follow and serve our sin like a slave to our master until we bring it to God and we turn to God who is powerful enough to free us from that bondage to follow that sin when we come into union with Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jesus offers us that freedom, freedom to be the person he created us to be in fellowship with him. That's the peace that our passage is talking about this morning. Now, verse 16 tells us that Jesus is taking both of these camps, those out way far away, the Gentiles way far away, and those who've been born close but are still separated. He's taking both of these camps, bringing them to God and bringing them into his church through his work on the cross, unifying them in the first of the images that we have. We have three images in this passage for the church, and the first of those images is the body. Over and over again in Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus wants us to understand the church as a body because that teaches us a lot. It teaches us a lot about our role and relationship with each other and what we are doing here inside the church. 1 Corinthians 12 puts it very well. In 1 Corinthians 12, God's word says this. I know it's small, but I wanted to get it all in two slides because it would have gone on forever. So I apologize. If you can't read it, listen. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. And so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. But if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So here in 1 Corinthians and here in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ wants the church to see that we all have unity in the church, and we can, but we continue to have diversity in our individual gifts and the, in the amount of grace that he has given to each one of us. And while in our flesh, we judge. We judge some having greater gifts than others. But that is man's judgment, and it's not God's judgment. God's judgment is that each individual member of the body is wonderfully made in and indispensable to the healthy functioning of the entire body. So in our natural self-absorption, we should not overestimate the value of our own gifts and interests in the things we want to emphasize in the church while dismissing those of others. For example, those gifted in teaching should value those gifted in works of mercy and serve with them as they lead us in works of mercy and vice versa. Those who value foreign missions should value those who value local missions. But on the flip side, we should not underestimate the value of our gifts or just the value of our fellowship with each other. And we shouldn't withhold them from the church. Whether you understand the value of your contributions or not, God says here in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Corinthians 12 that your value to the church is indispensable just in your being present here today or at a church fellowship meal or at a small group gathering. Your presence bears witness to the work that Christ has already done in your life in bringing you to him. It also bears witness to the work that Christ is still doing in your life because he is not done with any of us yet. Another way that God wants us to understand the church is as the household of God. In God's household, as Paul calls it, he is the father and we are the children. We are brothers and sisters. And that can be hard for some of us to wrap our minds around because we don't all resemble each other. And if you think that's hard for us to understand here today, think of how shocking it was when Jesus taught this in tribal Israel, where, Paul, where Tim Keller says that your family was your resume and your place in society. But both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel record the account of Jesus teaching a crowd of his followers when he's interrupted and told that his mother and brothers are outside and they're asking to speak to him. Jesus responded this way. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he points down to those who are following him, those he's speaking to and teaching. And he says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
Now, this can be a little bit hard for us to understand because we know that some of Jesus' brothers later came to have faith in him. Principally, I'm thinking of James, who the book of Acts tells us was the head of the church in Jerusalem. But this appears to be before that, before all of his brothers and sisters who were born after him had, had come to understand who he was as the son of God also and what he had come to do. But regardless of all that, Jesus here is trying to make a point that I think we all can get, that we have a spiritual bond with our church family and with others, other followers of Christ, and that bond is stronger and more enduring than our physical bonds with our earthly family. Those of us with unbelieving family members understand this. Perhaps some of you saw this over the holidays. We've grown up, some of us, in families with people who we are bonded to in love and through deeply shared experiences. But when we come to follow Jesus, our hearts and our values are transformed to be like those of our Savior. And when we return to our families and we're reminded of what our family values and the practices and things that our family engages in that we recognize are not consistent with our being a follower of Jesus Christ, we are grieved because of that new disconnect. That does not mean that we stop associating with or loving our family members who are outside of the church. On the contrary, our love for them drives us to our knees in prayer for them, that they would also be saved. And it drives us to lovingly share Christ with them, even in fear of being called a hypocrite because our families know our sins and our past sins better than anybody else in the world. But our love for them drives us to those things out of hope and prayers that they too will be joined to the household of God and be with us in eternity. And I love this image of the church as a family because we do, it is like a family. We eat meals together quite often. This past Friday night, we played board games together as a family does. And when I think of heaven, I love to think about the parable of the wedding banquet where the father in, in uh, the wedding banquet in the, in the gospel of Matthew, where the father has prepared a great feast for the bridegroom and for the wedding party and all the guests who are coming. And I love to think of heaven as that feast. Gathered together with extended family, yet even better, because there are no empty seats where we're missing those who've died in the Lord. They're going to be there with us. A meal we won't have to prepare, a meal we're not going to have to clean up afterwards, where we can eat and not have to worry about the calories, and we won't have to leave to go home, to go back to work, or go back to school, or to go back on our diet. <laughs> it really will be that destination vacation that offers us rest. I go on so many vacations and I don't get to rest, but this will be the one that gives us that final rest from our earthly struggles against the thorns at work and the sins in our lives. I long 
to eat that meal. And I enjoy the foretaste that we get when we gather here around the table for the Lord's Supper, as we will next week, and for church fellowship meals. The third image that our passage gives us for the church is as the church as a holy temple for the Lord that he dwells in. In verses 20 through 22, God wants us to see his church as a temple that is being built on the foundation of the prophets of the Old Testament, um, yeah, and the apostles of the New Testament. God is using our understanding of Solomon's temple, where his Holy Spirit dwelled in the Holy of Holies with all of its Shekinah glory. And he's using that to help us understand the spiritual temple that he is building here on earth for his spirit to dwell in. Here you see that we are the stones in that temple, being cut from the quarry, brought out of the world, and being put next to each other as he builds this church. And this is a great reminder of what we teach our children, that the church is not a building. It's a group of people called out of the world to worship him, sometimes in buildings, sometimes in houses, wherever his people are gathered together in his name. But the last point that I want to emphasize to you about the church is a really important one. And it's this, that that temple must be built on the foundation of God's word in the Bible or it will fall. God's word says that his house must be built on the words in this book or like the foolish man who built his house on the shifting sands when the rain came and the winds blew against it and the floods came up. The Gospel of Matthew says, and our Lord said there, that the house fail. And it says, quote, great was the fall. We must trust in the words that he's given to us in the Bible and not shy away from teaching them here. God says that all of his scriptures in the Bible come from him as if he had spoken them himself at the same time that they were being written. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is to say that, yes, men spoke and wrote these words, and we can sense their individual personalities coming out in them. We can sense Paul's zeal for the Lord in his epistles. But they do, they wrote under the authority and under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 3 puts it this way, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, this isn't Paul and Peter saying, this is what we think. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So while these first churches that received these letters, they knew Paul as a man, they knew Peter as a man, the Holy Spirit inside those Christians 
recognized the authority that these apostles who had followed and served with Christ had to give them the word of God, just as the prophets had done four or 500 years earlier in the Old Testament. So they recognized their authority, and we should too. We should never give in to the temptation of the Enlightenment, picking and choosing which parts of the Bible we like and which parts are kind of, ah, we don't like that part, so we're not going to talk about it. We shouldn't say, I like the teachings of Jesus, but these miracles, the virgin birth, the resurrection, that's too hard for me to get to. I like what Tim Keller said in the New York Times just before Christmas. He was uh, engaged in a Q&A uh, by Nicholas Kristof, who edited the Q&A and published it in the New York Times. And Tim Keller said this specifically in response to a question about the virgin birth. He said, there's nothing illogical about miracles if a creator God exists. If a God exists who is big enough to create the universe in all of its complexity and vastness, why should a mere miracle be such a mental stretch? To prove the miracles could not happen, you would have to know beyond a doubt that God does not exist. But that is not something that anyone can prove. Much of the world and many of the mainline Protestant churches, such as I grew up in, have bought into the notion that the church should change some of its beliefs, specifically on sexuality or on marriage in order to attract people, as if attracting people to a club is an end unto itself. No, we want to attract people to Christ and lift up and glorify Christ as he has revealed himself to be. And the decline in those churches who've been tempted and have gone on to change their beliefs, the decline of those churches is evidence of what the Bible says. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just before Thanksgiving, I read this article in McLean's Magazine, which is a major magazine in, uh, in Canada. And the article is reporting on church growth inside the province of Ontario. Here's a screenshot. The headline says this, quote, is, the key, is this the key to growing Protestant churches? Subtitle, an exclusive remarkable study finds that mainline churches get this, that focus on the gospel and prayer are growing, while the, those that don't are in decline. And the article, which was shared widely on social media around Thanksgiving and a little bit afterwards, it reports on a peer-reviewed survey done by two academics in Canada trying to find commonalities in churches that were growing and churches that were in decline. They surveyed mainline Protestant clergy as well as parishioners and they found this in the answers that were provided in response to the survey. Quote, answers in accord with traditional Christian orthodoxy, basic articles of faith such as the ancient creeds, the authority of scripture, God's visible working in the world today, the exclusivity of Christianity such as Jesus as the door to eternal life, the importance of daily prayer, were tightly bound to growing life in individual churches as well. Conservative churches had a lower mean age among attendees, had an emphasis on youth groups, the presence of young families, 
and wide participation by congregants, in other words, not only on Sunday mornings, and a commitment to evangelism. The article went on to report on this irony in churches in which the clergy agreed with this proposition, that the beliefs of of the Christian faith needed to change over time in order to stay relevant. Those churches, it found the irony, were in decline Well, those who disagreed with that proposition, the clergy who disagreed with that proposition, the churches that they led were growing. Now, although this was breaking news about a month ago, this is something that Bible-believing churches have been teaching for 2,000 years. What the prophet Isaiah wrote, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And that is the message of our text in Ephesians this morning, that churches built on the foundation of the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament, that God will come and build that church and he will dwell in their midst. And that is why we are so blessed by our senior pastor, Charlie Bale, and his practice of expository preaching, which so many pastors of sound churches do, by taking a book of the Bible and starting in the beginning of the chapter and marching us through it out of faith that every sentence in in this Bible were put there by God for a purpose. And that purpose is to point us towards Christ. In the Old Testament, pointing us forwards towards Christ, and in the New Testament, pointing us back to what Christ did on the cross, what he's doing in the world today, and what he's coming back to do at the end of time. Otherwise, churches that, with an unsound foundation, they will crumble, God's word says, and he will remove their spirit from dwelling inside of them, as we see in the first chapters of the book of Revelation. They can only last, those churches, on the same strength that any human club has, such as a country club or any fraternal organization that we can think of that come and go with time. But the church of Jesus Christ, as we said in our call to worship, as Christ himself said in our call to worship, it will last the test of time until he returns. So how should we respond to this message this morning? Let us respond by being the the church that Christ calls us to be. That is one body, one family, one temple where his spirit dwells. Pastor and author Don Carson wrote this. What binds us together is not common education, not a common race, a common income level, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural co-location, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and that is, he commands them to love one another. I think our church is many of these things. So in 2017, let us continue to strive together towards Christ while loving and serving each other. Please join me in prayer. 
Come, Lord Jesus, build your church here and in many other places in our community, in our nation, and in our world. Unite your people together to love each other the way you loved us and continue to love us sacrificially. Make our foundation strong to withstand the trials ahead and send us your spirit, we pray, to dwell in our midst. Yes, to dwell in our hearts, but also to dwell in our midst in power as we gather together here and in various places where your church will be found. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.